Welcome to the VoxGig Podcast. We talk to people in the developer community about developer relations, public speaking, and community events. For more details, visit voxgig.com slash podcast. All right, let's get started. Vector databases are the new, new database. And today I am speaking to Sebastian Vitalitz of Weaviate, all about how you can implement wonderful new AI algorithms like Retrieval Augmented Generation, which is also the new, new algorithm. We speak about how telling your users not to use your product is one of the best ways to build trust. We talk about the difference between developer relations metrics and developer relations signals. And of course, we talk about developer relations leadership. Sebastian, welcome. Welcome to the Fireside with VoxGig podcast talking about developer relations. You are head of developer relations for Weaviate, a rather popular, fashionable database in the AI vector database space. Uh, so yes, we're delighted, is, yeah. delighted to have you here today. Uh, my first question is going to be, uh, take us from zero to hero about what the Weaviate database does. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, so basically what Weaviate is, um, yeah, it, it, it goes almost in the name, like it's a vector database. And what's so special about it? Um, basically, the idea is that um, many people heard pretty much of like the machine learning models and machine learning in general. And there is this whole idea that there's those there are those models that allow you to put in some data. And as a response, you get like this thing, which is called like a vector embedding, which literally is just a bunch of numbers. So it's just very much like a picture is defined by like a bunch of pixels, which are numbers. In, in the case of uh, vector embedding is just how AI or machine learning understands the meaning of information. And the cool thing is that if you imagine a vector embedding was just like an X and Y position, it's, uh, it's like a place in the map. And then two places in the map that are close to each uh, close to each other are automatically similar. Yes. And uh, following that concept, if you have like a billion objects, you could create vector embeddings for them. And then if you search for like uh, a kitten, you know, you'll be able to find a cat and uh, and maybe dog or maybe other pets because they'll be close to each other. But if you search for a car, you're not going to be anywhere near that. So ex like expanding on that, obviously the vectors are a lot deeper. They contain a lot more information than that. Uh, we've created a database that uh, it was basically built from the ground up on the idea of working with vector embeddings. Um, so, so that instead of like, uh, well, sorry, so that it allows you to actually query and run super fast searches across like huge volumes of data. And this is like a super popular. So this is kind of like the, the bread and butter, like the most basic stuff, but you can do a million other things on top of it as well. Okay. Okay. And just to put it in context, the, 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 the usage that I would be familiar with is uh, using it for using it sort of in parallel with generative AI, right? So the basic idea being that um, I have some knowledge, some knowledge base or some domain, uh, I put my query in, it goes through Weaviate, and it generates a subset of relevant information, which I uh -huh. then use as part of the prompt to chat GPT or something like that, right? That's, yeah, that yeah, that's one of the that's, big use cases. 
Yeah, so uh, that's one of the big use cases. And like, um, there's a, a term even now uh, called rack or or retrieval or augmented generation. And, and that's kind of like a really cool because it's like a two-step thing where on one step you have your query that allows you to find all the relevant pieces of information first. And the second part is like, okay, I found what I was looking for. Let me put it into uh, like an LLM or large language model like, like GPT and say like, hey, given this context, please answer this query for me. And this is super cool. And why this is really cool is because if you look at those models, usually they are trained at certain uh, time and, and they're stateless. So if you keep asking the question or providing information to that model, the, the model doesn't learn from it from then on. Uh, and if you're an enterprise, you wouldn't necessarily even want uh, GPT to know about your internals. But exactly. what if you could use the power of GPT to answer questions based on that? So the, the power is maybe use a vector database like Weaviate to do the, the pre-querying part, gather all the relevant information and then passing it on saying like, hey, given this context, write me a report that I can send to my CEO as my uh, report. And like you have this, this beautiful structured content uh, and it's like super powerful and, and it's really fast. It's, it's just great. Awesome. We are going to talk about developer relations, but I've, I've got to get my inner programming nerd on first, right? So I do have a couple of follow-up technical questions. Uh, sure. So how do, how do you create the vectors in the first place, right? I have all this raw data. Let's, I don't know, it's, it's the, I don't know, the plays of William Shakespeare or something like that, right? Do I have to define a vector space or mapping in some way, or does Weavia do that for me? Yeah, so in a way, so that, that that's the thing, like Weavia works uh, in tandem with those machine learning models. So usually how your space, like vector space is defined is based, based on that model understanding of the world. So if you have a model that is, uh, let's say, trained on medical data, uh, any any content that you send into it, it will be able to generate like a vector that is based on that. Uh, if But if you send something that is completely unrelated, what it will give you back is just nonsense because it goes like, yeah, I don't know about it. Um, and it's very much, yeah, it's basically that's, that's sort of the idea. So the way this you would define space, let's say you're using an OpenAI uh, ADA model, which is a very popular one, or maybe you use the Cohere multilingual model, which is also pretty awesome. What you do is say like, hey, I'm using this model, and now you send like, let's say, 10,000 objects into Weaviate. What Weaviate will do is just grab each of them, uh, use the model to generate the vector embedding, and ah. it stores the data with the vector together. So you don't gotcha, even need to gotcha. worry about it that there's vectors involved, like it just happens behind the scenes for you. Okay, so that seems to be a key technical difference of vector databases with a sort of traditional data store, right? In a traditional data store, I can just put anything in. I define yeah. my own little schema and I can put anything in. But with something like Weaviates, I do have to say my data is with is in respect of this model. And that defines yeah, exactly. the mapping for me. Okay. To, to okay, something, but here's okay. the thing: you can still use any kind of data, right? So Weavit is still a, a database that allows you to bring in any kind of uh, information, and also you can bring in uh, different modalities. You can have images, audio, video. Uh, you can work with text, and even all of them combined. But you you could also have an object say like, "Hey, I have a book that has a title and description, and uh, and there's also and the date of birth, and like all of this." So you have all the flexibility. But the vector part of like how the search is done or how that space is done is is attached to uh, basically the model that you say like, hey, 
I think uh, Cohere will be really good for my data because uh, it is written in German, English, French, Chinese, and all the other ones. And I want a single query that any human language I put in, I want to be able to get a response across all of that content. So that's kind of like the, the, the beauty of it. Okay, okay. So I get the kind of similarity search thing, right, where I put in kitten mm-hmm. and gives me back cat. What other types of queries can I do? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think similarity across text is kind of like one of the parts of it. Um, and also like being able to work across multiple languages because, and this is the beauty of it, uh, like with those multilingual models, that uh, a sentence in English or in German in French uh, if you send it into that model, it will speed out uh, pretty much the same vector if it's like the same meaning. Uh, so multilingual is like one of them. We also have th- something that uh, we're super proud of. Um, it's uh, called hybrid search. So that allows you to combine uh, keyword search together with vector search. So in some cases, maybe the model that you're using is very well trained on most of the content that you have, but maybe you want to, and this is actually something we did with our own doc- documentation. Maybe there is some terms that are only relevant to your doc. So obviously the model wouldn't know something like what's a near text. Like, I don't know, I never seen it. So for that, you may want to combine like the keyword search because the keyword will find those. Uh, but for anything else, like how do I delete an object? The model will understand that and be able to find it. So okay. We talked about multi, yeah. So the multilingual part, you can have like the keyword search, uh, which is super powerful. Uh, obviously, RAG is one of it. Um, and there's also like different kinds of applications that maybe you can use. So you could build a chatbot uh, where you could combine uh, the functionality of like these generative models, uh, like we mentioned GPT, or you have Palm 2, or like there's a bunch of other ones where you could treat the uh, Weaviate as the long-term memory. So then suddenly you could have a conversation and the generative response, it, it works like a feedback loop where oh, you can yes. put, yeah, put, yeah, put yeah. it back in a database. And the next time somebody asks, you already use the previously generated response as the next response. And it kind of like evolves over time. Gotcha. Yeah, it's exciting stuff. Um, I don't, so do you think this is kind of, similar to the wave of uh, document stores that came about about 15, 20 years ago, right? You had Mongo and you you had you have previously worked in Mongo, right? So you have an interesting perspective yep. there. CouchDB and that sort of stuff, going all the way back to the old Java object databases. Um, and there was this huge eruption of all these different databases, and they, they, all with the same basic idea, right? That they were no SQL. Um, and now we're seeing we seem to be seeing the same sort of thing with vector databases. Is this an, is this a, is this another sort of changeover of the eras? Is this is it seems like there's lots of vector databases now, which is good. Yeah, good for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Um, honestly, uh, and this is the the thing. Like um, like you mentioned uh, just a moment ago, I worked at MongoDB just before I joined Weaviate, and honestly, I had like the the, the best job in the world. I was the keynote producer and uh, it was like super creative, like really fun job that I was doing was part of the DevRel organization there. Uh, and then what happened was that at one point I met uh, Bob Van Lout, who's the CEO of, of Weaviate. And he explained to me the whole idea of vector embeddings, what are vector databases and everything. And I went with like, literally I, I, I did I, in my head, it, I had this spark and I said the same thing as you said, like, wait, this is like MongoDB 15 years ago. Yeah. This is, this is a new wave 
there's something big happening and 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 that was a year and a half ago and a year and a half ago almost nobody knew what vector databases were and now everybody tries to talk about it right uh, and there's even you know even some jokes that like uh, is Peppa the pig going to add vector databases to, <laughs> to, to her website or something because everybody tries to do it because people realize that this is actually pretty serious this is very powerful and it is going to change the way we do things um I, sure, I st- yeah. it's I don't think it's a replacement for the existing databases. It's just like a new kind of database. It's a new kind of new, something that unlocks new yeah. potentials. Yeah, absolutely. I yeah. So I, I think I might have had a tiny bit of experience with something similar uh, pre-COVID because um, I was building at the time uh, sort of a search engine for technology conferences, and the, uh, the search system we used was something called Vespa which Yahoo mm-hmm. had open sourced, uh, which had some sort of machine learning slash vector element to it, although I didn't really understand how to use it. <laughs> yeah, is that Vespa. similar or is that like an original, is that like a, a precursor? Where does well, that fit into I, the, where does that fit into the sort of evolution? I, I would say that like um, Vespa probably be one of the closer aligned kind of maybe competitors that we have. They're not exactly working the same way because there's this whole distinction between dense vectors and sparse vectors. Um, and I don't want to get too nerdy or, or okay. too, too, too deep into it, but like what those machine learning models uh, generate, they, they tend to, they're like the dense vectors. And usually let's say, uh, like use that other model. I think that's 1500 dimensions. While sparse vectors is more like for every key keyword that you have in your context, you basically have a new dimension. So if you have like a, a hundred thousand different uh, keywords across all of your content, then your vectors will be like a hundred, a uh, hundred thousand deep. And right. that's kind of like the, the differentiator. So later on, when you search through content, say like, oh, this content contains this, this, and that. Um, but but the ideas are very similar in many ways. Um, but okay. I'm not a Vespa expert, so I don't want to deep too. Yeah, too yeah, sure. So we, we V8 is, is the dense vector. Yes. It's on the side yeah. of dense vectors. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. That gives me it's a smart to... dense vector, right? Yeah. <laughs> that gives me lots of stuff to, to uh, Google or perhaps ask ChatGPT uh, later. Um, okay. So are you guys taking the same kind of a philosoph- philosophical approach to developers that people like Mongo and KFCB did back in the day? Very friendly to developers, very open source. Um, is that kind of part of the core strategy? Basically, tell me, you know, how do you guys see developers? Yeah, absolutely. So here's a fun thing. Like, I'm going to take like a tiny step back, but one of the uh, main mantras or like the keyword for us is joy. Um, and, and this is really crazy, but like uh, the way we want to build a company, you want to build a company with joy. Everything we do is is related to creating joy. And, and even what we keep saying is like, we want to build something that allows you to feel joy while you build with Weviate. So this is like one of the first things we wanna we wanna do. We wanna pe- people to really enjoy the whole process and everything. Uh, and and I can't stress enough like how often we say these words and often the arguments are won and lost in at Weviate based on joy. Like it is incredible. And of course, open source is something that does bring a lot of joy. Uh, and this is 
there's there's no doubt about it. And uh, open source, uh, the way we build the company and the product is, is very open source. So we do two things. We build our product in open source way, but also we have... Um, this series of meta blocks where we in the open say how we run maybe meetups, how we run our company remote, how do we do deal with holidays, etc. So we basically build both the product and the company in the open. And I think it's pretty awesome. Yeah, there's a um there's kind of an observation around this developer relations stuff, right? Where some companies try to do it, but it's 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 kind of not believable. And then other companies do it, but it's very clear that they actually care about developers, right? Developers, you can see our heart, heart and soul for them. It's very hard to fake, isn't it? Actually caring about developers. It, it, it is. It is hard to fake it because it just comes across really fast, right? The moment you have the first conflict, if you don't care about developers and, and, and your community, it will just show, right? Like, and I think very often we will drop everything, you know, like if what we do causes pain or like makes it difficult for people that use our product, you know, like and, and any discomfort or like making it hard to work with, like we'll we'll handle it, right? Like, and even right now. Uh, like in the last couple of weeks, there was uh, we discovered a bug that was affecting one types of the queries. Um, we literally like went like, "Hey, this is too important. Like it affects uh, a whole number of users." And the whole argument within the company wasn't like how many customers it affects. No, it was how many people in the com- community were affected by it. Right. So of right. course we we deeply care about our customers because they're very important, but we want we won't deprioritize our community if there's something that also affects them. Like this is important. Yeah. And does that does that vision does that leadership come right from the top from the founders from the CEO? Yeah. Do they have that absolutely? Value? Do they have those values. Yeah. Yeah. So this was something, and um, when when originally I was talking to Bob about joining Weviate, like I, I told him like a few things. Like one of things like. I will never lie, like on behalf of the company or, or or for any whatever reason. So whatever we do, it has to be in the open, it has to be honest, and it has to be for the good of like the people that uh, use the product. And it was absolutely. And then I also told him, if I ever walk into a room and I see that Weaver is a bad solution, I will tell customers or those, those community people that not to use Weaviate. And I need him to be fine with it. And he was like, absolutely, right? Like, and it's literally, and it's very, and this one is very similar to what I learned at MongoDB, where if something is not good for the customers or for the developers, it's better to actually even stop them from making that mistake because going backwards on kind of like, hey, I invested six months. This was such a nonsense. It's, it's just not worth it for anybody, right? So yeah, like it's, it's, it's basically from the top to bottom and from bottom up, like it, in all directions, we really care about that. It's such a powerful strategy to tell your customer not to buy from you, to say <laughs> we're the wrong solution. Uh, and I think it's it takes a lot of courage and I think a lot of companies are afraid to do it. I know that when I have done that, they come back maybe a year later, two years later, when it is the right time. And they're an even better client, an even better customer, because uh, you showed that you were honest. They can trust you. Yeah, absolutely. Is, yeah, you know, you, you're you're investing in trust. Uh, but it's uh, you know, <laughs> people have quarterly sales targets. It's hard to be, it's hard to be honest, right? 
It is, but but that's why like us being an open source company, first of all, like it's it's um if you if we were very successful at, at getting like a thousand customers that pay us a lot of money, but there is only like maybe 500 people in the wild using Weviate, then we also are going to fail. Because what you need is sometimes these customers coming like, you know what, I love Weviate, but now I need to hire somebody with the expertise, with the experience and everything. Where are they going to find somebody? Like, well, there's nobody. Okay, we're going to go to a competitor who seems to have a lot of people using your tool. Exactly. And so this is super important. That's why we will never deprioritize like, like the community because it should be a win-win for everyone, right? Like, and also you're part of our community, you know, build a career around it. Like I'll help you, like I'll, I'll journey, like anyone that builds like a cool demo and wants to show it, like we have this podcast we call Weavid Air. We bring people over to share like their hackathon projects or like projects that they do uh, and businesses that they try to create. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, I... and the other aspect to this that I wanted to ask you about um, is, developer relations leadership. So we can all have these principles. And I think a lot of people who work as developer advocates have the same principles, but often find it a little bit difficult if leadership doesn't share these values. And it sounds, you, you sound to be a very lucky situation where there's alignment all the way from the CEO down. So in your position as a developer relations leader, let's talk about that, right? Let's talk about how you built your team, what your team does. You're still in startup mode, right? So I guess that's yes. different from the type of DevRel you used to do in Mongo, which was an established company. Yeah, I think yeah, there's yeah, there's so much to unpack here. Uh, absolutely, like trying to do DevRel or doing DevRel at the startup is a completely different beast uh, than working uh, for an established company, right? And I think I, I could even like explain like my team. It's it. it I, I always say that it feels like three teams or multiple teams. So I have like five people in my team uh, working with me and we're just about to hire a sixth person hopefully by the end of next week um but it's such a the big thing is like the variety of tasks and stuff that we do and anyone that is in devrel and hears that's like yeah of course i wear 10 different hats that's such a devrel mm, thing that's such, it is I, yes yes it is but the, the kind of hats we wear that is so different um that I, I actually have only one out of these five people only one of them actually has a, a title of developer advocate because we do such a different uh, stuff so uh, so, for example, in my team, uh, I have two people that deal with documentation and ed education, right? Like this is like their sole focus. Um, then I have two other people that one is like a community manager, the other one is a community support person. And and I want to come back to the community support because that's a really important point. Mm. And then I also have Zen, who's my uh, official developer advocate. And there is there is a bit of overlap. So, uh, like for example, JP who does education and and and. And documentation, he will often do workshops. He will often give talks at meetups and everything. But uh, but each of their goals, like the, as if if you have like the one thing that you should actually absolutely succeed at, is different between these three different groups. Um, while when I was at MongoDB, like uh, and I was doing a you know I was a keynote man, a keynote producer. Like I had one job, right? Like I didn't have to think about juggling twenty seven different things. The, that one job I had was already extremely uh, demanding, right? But in this case, we go like, yeah, you have you have one job, but really you have ten, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so who do you report to? Where does where does developer relations fit in the Weviate corporate structure? Yeah, so in our case, I, I report straight to our CEO. 
right? Like, uh-huh. so our Very CEO absolutely loves uh, DevRel. Like, this was something super important for him from day one. Um, so I, I report straight to him. And we also have like very interesting model because we we are going with uh, kind of flat-ish structure uh, where we are divided into cells as opposed to departments and everything. And a cell usually is like a living and breathing organism that does one job, except for myself because my team does three different things, but that's fine. <laughs> it's DevRel, right? That's DevRel. Um, yeah, it's DevRel. But, but that's kind of the story. And I think one of the things that I had to learn really fast because this was my first like a proper leadership position. Uh, something that I had to learn really fast is uh, put more effort on mentoring and enablement than trying to get to perfection myself. So like there were so many times where I saw somebody working on something and I was like, yeah, we could do it this way. And then I had to learn really fast that like I can't split myself into five different places. Uh, and I really focus on enabling people in my team. And kind of I, even at one point I said, like, listen, ask for forgiveness, not permission. Like I'm I'm never going to punish you for anything that you do. If you make an honest mistake because you try different things, uh, that's okay. Uh, if ever I will have a problem with anyone, if uh, if they didn't try and if they weren't brave enough. And uh, that was amazing because it kind of went from like a bit of handholding to a bit of overseeing to kind of like, People do stuff uh, without me even like knowing until like it after it happened later, and then uh, so like just like men, I earlier mentioned that there was this issue that we jumped on to help out. Um, I kind of like um, um, I was offline, and then when that came out, like uh, JP in my team, uh, he 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 noticed that something was happening, was communicating with our CTO and everything, came up with a plan. And then when I woke up, like at 7.30 in the morning, instead of like getting up and like uh, getting some breakfast, I just saw the message and I started responding. And, and it was so great because he, he just thought about it, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's an important leadership skill, right? Which is to, to let people make their own mistakes and learn. The, the person Probably. who's made a mistake is more valuable because they've learned something. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You should, never, you should never fire somebody because they make a mistake. The person with lots of mistakes is the person who's who's got the most skill. Um, okay, so that the, the uh, it's really inspiring the way that you put things together in Weaviate, I, 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 and especially the structure that's been created, right? Um, but one of the challenges that you always have in developer relations is this cross-functional thing where you have to integrate what you're doing with the rest of the organization, align with marketing, find out what core engineering is doing. Is that part of your job? How, how do you manage that side of things? Yeah, absolutely. Like, um, I mean, DevRo is is kind of like that unit and I'm preaching to the choir, yeah. but it's like literally we're in the middle of <laughs> But it's really hard. Almost that's happening. <laughs> it's super hard. I mean, it's it's hard and it's super simple at the same time. It all goes down to communication and and truly caring. And you have to have like one thing, like you have to understand who you are sort of working for. And in my case, you go like, oh yeah, you work for Bob, like he's your boss. I was like, no, no, no. I work for the community. I work for the developers that use our tool. Like I am their first advocate, right? Like the way I see is like, yes, I want to sort of sometimes tiny bit preach towards them, say like, hey, we have this and this, get them excited. Mm-hmm. But in reality, I was like, what can I do to make you successful with it? Um, but but for me, like the success is like a communication and collaboration. 
Um, so I I maintain a close relationship with people across different teams. So be the head of marketing or head of the growth team, or uh, I work very closely with our designer. I work closely with our HR. I work closely with our engineering, right? And But the thing is, what I don't necessarily want to do um, is I never want to be the bottleneck. I have this thing where I always say, like, I want to create everything in such way so that if one day I get hit by a car, and I know this is very dark, mm. but if one day <laughs> I get hit by a car, I want people to go like, oh, sad, we like Sebastian, but we continue on, right? Yeah. And I think that's super important to me. So to the point, uh, for example, how, let's say, how we do releases, right? It's, it's very interesting because as part of the release, uh, we take care of uh, writing the release blog post and we take care of uh, write, updating our documentation with the release parts and everything. And the way we do it is uh, when we define like, okay, in four weeks, there's a release. Actually, we have one in in one week, uh, but oh, really like at least luck, four, four, to, <laughs> yeah, four to six weeks before, what we do is like uh, we connect up with uh, either like the, the CTO or like one of the heads within the engineering team and say like, okay, what goes into the release in four weeks or four to six weeks from now? Okay, these are the features. Okay, great. Next step, who are the, the, the engineering experts, right? So what, what happens like for each of those announcements, we have a dedicated tech expert that either works on it or define it in some way. And then on our side, we attach a dedicated developer, like a DevRel person, right? Um, and, and there's multiple things that happen. Like, A, they build very good relationship with all those engineers, but also, like, we are the ones that, are le- that learn everything that co- comes up. So with every release, we end up having, like, this great view. Uh, and then at the end of the day, like, we remove the headaches from engineers because, let's say, uh, let's face it, uh, most engineers are really great at writing code, not so great at writing text, you know? Yes. Um, so, and, and we do that. And, like, this is just, like, one example where we go from, like, the knowledge transfer, as a side effect, we also test the tools and we find so many bugs, we find so many issues and, and a bug also is a DX. DX is all could also be a bug, right? Where it's just like, hey, this is just too hard to use. Why is this? Um, and 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 yeah, like it's, it's just that communication. But what's important for me is that I can help and establish the, this communication, the system, but then I, I make sure that there's one or two people within the team that can handle it, right? So let's say if I want to take time off, I don't worry that everything will fall apart, right? Yeah. And it's it's just great. Uh, and it's harder than it's it, it's harder than it sounds to make yourself unnecessary as a leader. Yeah, um, it's yeah. it's quite a trick. It's quite a trick to be able to do it. <laughs> you know what's the hard part? Because I'm talking about like getting hit by a car, but but that also makes I make myself very replaceable to some extent. So technically for anyone that you, if you feel unsafe about your job, that is a terrible thing to do, right? Um, yeah. But my philosophy is if one day there is a different thing that I want to do, there's not going to be anything blocking me from moving to the next thing, right? So, and and honestly, I, I I have this mission that like everyone I work with, I want them to kind of be, you know, two years, like if they work with me for two years, I want them to be two or 20 years better than they were before yes. we started working together, right? Like I want to help people build their careers and everything. And, you know, like if one day there's a different opportunity and different crazy thing I could do, you know, like um, nothing blocks me. I said like a true DevRel. Right. <laughs> we, we like yeah. to do all the crazy stuff. Uh, so, Sebastian, you maybe had a you maybe had a suspicion this was coming. I have the terrible question. 
Metrics. Uh-oh. Metrics. <laughs> How do you guys measure what you do? Any insights? Any better ways to measure, show value to the organization? Because we always suffer. We always suffer with this question. <laughs> yeah, man. I, I mean, dude. So I, I, we went as a team, like there's like five of us who went to, like there's also a few people from the dev, uh, dev growth team uh, to DevRelCon in London just a few weeks ago. And I'm not kidding, like three quarters of the talks were talking about <laughs> metrics yeah. because it's, 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 it's just yes. like, what the hell are you doing? Um, so first of all, I, I look at things as metrics and signals. Um, and, and here's the distinction. So if you look at GitHub stars, for some people, that's a metric. To me, that's a signal. Because a GitHub star kind of indicates that something is happening, something is popular, but there could be very different reasons why there's more one, one repo has more GitHub stars than the others. It doesn't necessarily always reflect exactly um, the success of the efforts that you're making. Having said that, it is still a signal because if you're doing really poorly, you're not going to have, you know, you're not, not going to go over 100, et cetera, right? Um, but the metrics-wise, it, it's about, and this is something we are right now establishing, uh, We like like working with Common Room, like establishing that, and, and we are looking at different kind of metrics depending on the function that we have. So like I mentioned, uh, we have uh, the documentation and learning, right? Like in this case, we are looking at number of views, how much time people spend uh, at different places, how many people, for example, will go from this place to, let's say, our cloud services, et cetera, right? Like make, make those different steps. Um, for example, when it comes to customer uh, community support, um, and I want to come back to it at one point later, uh, but with the community support, we're looking at like, hey, what is the average time to the first response and to the resolution, right? And so it's all about, first of all, and we're still at a stage where we're establishing what's the ground uh, like uh, levels that we can then try to improve on. Um, and then, of course, like with the developer advocacy, um, it's kind of like, hey, if you write in blog posts, uh, again, like how much views, how many uh, we, we get, but also how many reactions we get out of it, right? Yeah. So we allow people to write comments underneath our blog posts, uh, but also if we if uh, the growth team or marketing is sharing, it's like, hey, there's a new blog post, et cetera, like how, much, how many reactions do we get? How many follow-ups and how much does it get uh, responded to? Uh, and then likewise with going to events, right? Like uh, what happened around the event? If we if I went to this event and then suddenly there is a spike coming from Germany, that kind of shows that something happened, right? So, and you probably know it like with metrics in Devro, there's no exact science. A lot of it is kind of like reading between the lines, but being able to kind of show uh, that there, there was some impact here or here, it's, it's important. Um, and one, the last example I want to use is uh, we're running weekly online workshops. And it kind of started like as a, a small idea, who's going to come to that? And then the first one's like, we had like 10 people. Yay, nice. Like we like within six weeks, we had 40 people signing up to it. Uh, and then the, the, the cool thing is that now we... Uh, because we capture the email addresses from people that joined uh, those workshops, um, this becomes like a devil qualified lead to some extent. Uh, and where it's important is that I would like to come back to it six months from now and say like, hey, of all the people that became customers, how many of them went through that uh, devil workshops kind of flow? Because then we could kind of like show like, statistically people that go to our workshops are more likely to not just sign up, but stay with us versus those that don't go, maybe they figured out themselves or maybe they had some struggles and dropped off. 
Uh, and so, so it's kind of like big part of it is like setting up, making assumptions, and then trying to prove it later. Um, I hope that answers. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, yeah. I really, yeah, I, I really like this distinction between metrics and signal because uh, signal sort of contains the implicit message that you shouldn't really use them as targets. I think this yeah. is this is the problem we have with a lot of metrics is they get turned into targets, which is unhealthy. Yeah. Um, you know, whereas, and I think there was, there was a recent, uh, on the community pulse podcast, there was a recent discussion around somebody, somebody was asked, you know, to, oh, you need to get X many views on your blog post. And the DevRel said, well, why don't I just write listicles, right? Which is useless. Yep. It doesn't, it doesn't impress developers at all. So if you use this idea of, of signals, you can still use the number. But uh, you sort of take the danger out of it, right? That senior management might start using it as a as a target or some sort of performance measurement. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because I think my issue with those signals is, and sorry to interrupt, my issue with those signals is that sometimes if you get a bad actor, um, you could gamify it, right? Let's say oh, totally. yeah. um, you you put a target like Sebastian. We need to get hundred thousand views on blog posts every month. Um, I'll just throw a ton of money at ads, and and they're not going to be ads that will go to even like people within our space, just somewhere where I know people will be very clickbaity and everything, and people will just come. Uh, the conversion rate will be zero point zero zero zero, but I'll hit my target, right? Like I'll never yeah. do that because I'm, I'm an honest, uh, an honest fool. Uh, but many people would, and I want to avoid that, right? I don't want to give people targets uh, or that that are kind of nonsense that they can gamify, right? But at the same time, if they're just signals, and if I observe them from the side without trying to necessarily always optimize for 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 them. Uh, it can give you a very nice image, right? Exactly. Uh, what target targets like are different, right? Like if you have like, hey, I have a target of like this n- number of qualified leads, like a devil qualified leads where people went through the journey, connected with us, and we inspire them to maybe build a demo that one day they kind of come around. That's that's a real target because that requires proper effort. I can't fake it. I yeah. can't hack it, you know? I mean... Yeah, I mean, if there's a way to hack the way, like suddenly you get a million customers, oh my god, you, you could be a millionaire in a day, right? <laughs> oh, we, we just asked ChatGPT. I'm sure there must be. <laughs> I must know the answer. Yes. What one signal that I like? I'd, I'd be interested in your opinion on this one. Is um, uh-huh. uh, and you've mentioned communities, right? Is around communities uh, a signal that I like to see is returning members. So even if the total audience is is mm-hmm. maybe low or or small if a, if a significant portion of that audience is returning members for me that's a signal that you're building a healthy community yeah actually that that's where i would argue that that's not a signal that's that's actually ah, okay that, that is okay. not a signal to me so i think <laughs> so one example i would say signal versus uh like yeah target is uh it so if you have a slack so our slack we we have like recently we just had the 4,000 member joining our Slack. And the number of people in Slack, that's a signal to me because it's easy to kind of attract people to just kind of join in and everything. But the the, the true metric here is how many of them are active, how many, uh, we, how many people we have monthly engaged, like monthly unique users, right, or community members. And I think to, for me, that's the real target. 
Because if we build okay. a vibrant and nice community, uh, and you have 400 out of this 4,000 co- continuously, uh, you know, being busy and and kind of contributing, that's great. You may have 400 million, and only 20 people are busy. Well, you're failing, right? But the signal looks nice, but it's nonsense. Okay, that's a really important distinction. Yeah, it's quite subtle. All right, that's clever. That's very clever. I have one last question. I have one last Go question. How did you end up in developer relations? Oh my god! It's a strange. Okay. It's a, such a strange job, right? How do people end up doing this job? Um, yeah, it, it was like the biggest coincidence ever. Uh, I will have to say. So, um, the, the story goes: uh, I, I use I work at this. I work at Experian. That was like the first uh, real uh, job I had after uh, I graduated from university, and I was in professional services. I was a consultant. And then uh, one time there was uh, this guy, Trevor, that I used to work with. He was also a consultant and he calls me and he's like, Sebastian, I found the best job for you. And, and I was like, what is it? And then he basically told me the story how he was interviewing for a job at this company called Telerik. Uh, and then they were talk, they, they basically needed somebody that would go around, talk to people, present, uh, and then kind of like do demo, do coding and everything. And he, he basically said like, that's not a job for me, but I know just the guy. Um, <laughs> so, so it was like the weirdest thing. So, um, and then I met Demo, who was like uh, running the the London or like the UK part of Telerik, uh, and then he described like the the weirdest, most exciting job I could imagine at a time. And 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 like after like half an hour, I was like, wait, so are you you going to pay me to talk? Like he's like, yeah. yeah. Like if you go around and talk to people, I'll pay you. I was like, yeah, I'm sold. Let's do it. And of wow. course, we, later we had like a proper interview and everything. But but it was like a, for me, it was a co- uh, a massive coincidence. I I actually until then I've never been to an external conference or a meetup or like I I gave presentations and everything, but I never really uh, did that did that. So I got really lucky, I have to say. Um, and then luckily for good me, friend, that guy, good friend. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Right. And luckily for me, I just turned out to be good at it. So yeah. Yeah. Wow. Oh, that's a really happy, inspiring story to end with. Sebastian, I know. thank you so, so much. Yeah. Thank you so much. I, so honestly, if you want advice on how to get into Devro, uh, get a friend called <laughs> Trevor. You know, <laughs> good friends. <laughs> oh, they should be called Trevor. Uh, awesome. The secrets are all here, folks. Sebastian, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. You can find the transcript of this podcast and any links mentioned on our podcast page at voxgeek.com slash podcast. Subscribe for weekly editions where we talk to the people who make the developer community work. For even more, read our newsletter. You can subscribe at voxgeek.com slash newsletter or follow our Twitter at voxgeek. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.